Well, good morning. Glad you all survived Thanksgiving, and by the looks of things, you certainly ate your fill, didn't you? And so do I. Um, we had a great time. Uh, let's, uh, we're going to be looking at a really uh, familiar passage in Romans chapter 8 uh, this morning, and uh, sometimes familiarity uh, can encourage ignorance, I suppose. Uh, we know it so well. So let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to give us uh, His insight and, uh, and grab hold of our minds um, as we engage um, His Word. So let's pray. Father, thank You for allowing us this privilege to worship You, uh, to gather like this. We're grateful. Um, challenging times, Father, but um, I thank You for what you're doing and, and continuing. Your word is not um, on lockdown in any form or fashion. Um, thank you, Father, that um, just by the power of your Holy Spirit, we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds and that we can do that by opening up your scriptures. And this morning and these moments now, I pray, Lord, that your spirit will teach us and, and direct us into truth. We, we need you, Lord. We need uh, the clarity that only you can bring to our minds. And not just clarity of our minds, but transformation of our lives. Lord Jesus, you said that um, when we know the truth, the truth will set us free, and we need to be continually set free to that, into that life of um, that liberty of the, the spirit of truth and, and live in a way that's honoring to you. So, Father... Here we are, um, just we present ourselves to you and we ask that you would do your work of grace in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a typical December day in uh, Nebraska uh, where I grew up. Um, nothing unusual, just cold. It was typical. My wife's grandparents uh, lived in Wayne, Nebraska. That's where my wife grew up. And on this particular December day in 1944, 76 years ago, their normal, typical day was interrupted by a knock at the door and a, and a telegram from the War Department. The telegram read this, to Mrs. Mary Eining, Wayne, Nebraska, the Secretary of War desires me to express his deep regret that your son, Private John F. Eining, has been reported missing in action since the 13th of November in France. If further details or other information are received, you will be promptly notified. In an instant, life in Little Wayne, Nebraska was changed. Um, Lisa's aunt, who still is living. She was about nine years old at the time. She recalls how she was called out of school that morning and um, taken home, home to grieving parents who were in mourning and shock that their 20-year-old son Johnny was, was missing in action. Um, trials and tragedies come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, do they not? Some force us to rearrange our day, some cause us to rearrange um, our life. Um, they come 
at us, uh, sometimes very quickly, and uh, these unwanted telegrams of, of pain, which is why we need God's perspective on things. We really need to understand what His Word says and align our thinking properly with His Word. Um, I don't know of a better chapter in Scripture that helps us understand how to survive in some difficult situations of life than Romans chapter 8. I invite you to take your Bibles, turn there, Romans chapter 8. It's a, a chapter that begins with the good news. There is therefore now no condemnation to those in Christ. It ends with there is therefore no separation from God's love. And in between are these great truths about um, our identity with Jesus, how the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a gift that Though our outer man is dead, it's, it's this mortal flesh susceptible to sin, our inner man is alive. And we can experience, as he said in verse 6, life and peace because of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, a, it's a chapter that says we are adopted into the God's forever family, that we are His children. Wonderful truths. And the, the last half of Romans chapter 8 especially communicates words of encouragement in the midst of some difficult situations in life. Uh, we saw last week one of those first words of encouragement is that present sufferings can't be compared to future glory. He said in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed. Keep your eyes on the prize, says Paul. Wonderful truth. And though we're going through some very challenging times, he said that the issues of the now they don't hold a candle to the glories, to the joys that await us. Present suffering cannot impact future glory. So don't let pain and the emotion of your current situation cloud your thinking about what God has in store for us. Are you waiting eagerly for the Lord's return? Are you keeping your eyes on the prize? Well, that's the first word of encouragement he immediately goes into a second word of encouragement that's found in verse 26 and 27. Verse 26 and 27 says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul says, hey, let me give you a second word of encouragement. It's simply this. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He prays for us. He helps us in our weakness. That's how he does it. Now, what did Paul mean by our weakness? Uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 104, verse 14, for he himself knows our frame and he's mindful that we're simply dust. God knows what our situation is. He knows that we are so susceptible to the fears and the concerns and the, the destruction of this world. Though our inner man has been renewed because of, of the cross of Jesus Christ, our inner man has been brought to life and newness of Christ the moment we trust Him as our Savior. That inner man is still encased in this outer body of sin. It's what Paul said in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free from this body of sin that is so susceptible to the allurements of sin. God knows our frame. He knows that we can forget so easily 
to stand firm against the spiritual battles, the, the principalities of darkness, that we will forget to put on the full armor of God. God knows that our minds, our, our emotions, our will can be led astray. We can succumb to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the boastful pride of life. He knows our frame. We don't like to think of ourselves as weak. And it's amazing how a little microscopic virus has reminded us how weak we really are and how susceptible we are to even despair. We need help. And God is saying in this passage, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you through the Holy Spirit. Jesus had said in John chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. Jesus was heading up to heaven. He said, but I'm, going, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'll give you a helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our helper. And Paul says there in verse 26, he helps us by coming alongside and lifting our burdens. See, that little four-letter word, help, H-E-L-P, in English is a, kind of a bit boring maybe. But the word that Paul used here that is translated help is a rich term full of meaning. It basically has the idea of, of a, it's a word picture almost, of a person carrying a heavy load and someone comes alongside and grabs hold of that load and aids that person in carrying and lifting that load. That's what the word means. It's used one other time in the New Testament, only two passages. This passage and in Luke chapter uh, 10 verse 40, that Mary and Martha story, remember Jesus had come to visit Mary and Martha, and guests were coming, and what was Martha doing? She was busy about in the kitchen, right? She was cooking, she was getting things ready, and, and then all of a sudden she looks over, and there's Mar Mary. And what's Mary doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and it irks her. And she comes to Jesus, and she says, tell Mary to help me. It's the same word. I need someone to come alongside and lift my load. Look, there's pots and pans to carry. There's food that's got to be brought out. She's just sitting there. I need someone to come alongside, aid me, lift my burden. It's like a person carrying a, a heavy load, a, a carrying a big trunk or something, and, and they're dragging along, and someone else comes alongside and grabs the other end and lifts it. And That's what this word means. The Spirit of God helps us. Now, how specifically does he grab hold of and come to our aid? How does he specifically do that? Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps our weaknesses, how? For we don't know how to pray as we should. And so the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In the midst of unpleasant circumstances, when there's that knock at the door and that telegram of life unloads some pretty perplexing and difficult situations. We find ourselves in a daze, in a fog. What do we do? How do, how do we maneuver through this? I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what's best. I don't know how to pray in this situation. What do I do? The Spirit comes to our aid by interceding for us, it says, with, with groanings too deep for words, wordless utterances or unutterable utterances. I think Paul is do, doing a play on words here because earlier he said creation groans. All of creation is groaned, subjected to the curse of God. We see hurricanes and earthquakes and all sorts of 
of uh, displays of groanings of a creation. And in verse 23, he says, even we ourselves groan. We live in this world and we're struggling and we, we groan within ourselves. Well, the counter to the groanings of the world and the groanings of, of ourselves is the Spirit Himself who groans. The third person of the Trinity, this passage is saying, it comes before the Father. And He prays for us. He intercedes for us. He has those, those unutterable groanings of the heart of the Spirit of God before the Father. And his intercessions are always in accordance with the mind and the will of God. Verse 27 says, And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. He, God the Father, who searches and knows all things, he knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints in accordance with the will of God. You know, it's a, I, so many times in this church, I've heard uh, testimonies and, and people so appreciative of the prayers that go up in their behalf. I mean, we have uh, prayer teams here, we, we are community groups where they pray for one another, word gets out and prayer goes up, and, and so many times people have said, you have said, man, I could just, it's, it's just palpable, I can feel the prayers of believers. I just feel lifted up because I know people are praying. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But you know what's better almost? Because there are times where we don't even know how to pray. Even as prayer teams, I mean, how do, you, how do, how do we pray? Now, oftentimes, by the way, our default prayer is, Lord, get me out of this mess. Take this away from me. When God may have designed perfectly whatever is that situation to shape us more into Christ's likeness. But the Spirit of God, when He prays to the Father, when He intercedes for us, He never misses the mark. He is right on target, and God the Father understands, and He searches the heart of everything. He knows the mind of the Spirit, and as the Spirit groans and these unutterable, wordless groanings before God, they're right on target. They're within the will of God. And a prayer that's prayed in accordance with the will of God is a prayer that's guaranteed to be answered. I hope that's encouraging. When we and brothers and sisters in Christ don't know how to pray, rest assured, Paul is saying, in the midst of the maybe horrendous situations of life, there is someone who is interceding for you before the Father. It's the third person of the Trinity himself. The Holy Spirit is doing that for you on your behalf. Now, I don't know what greater encouragement we can have other than what comes next. Look at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He has predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he's called. And these whom he called, he's justified. And these whom he has justified, he has also glorified. Here's the, a third truth that brings encouragement, I hope. And that is that our sovereign God is always unfolding his eternal purposes. Nothing can thwart the unfolding of God's divine counsel 
his eternal purposes for life. God can take any difficult situation, he can take any bad thing that is happening, and he can work it out for our good. Now, how does that work? How, do God, how does God do that? Um, obviously, verse 28 is a very familiar verse. You may have it on some uh, Christian plaque hanging up somewhere. God causes all things to work together for good. Let's unpack it kind of little phrase by phrase. It starts by saying, and we know, and the word that Paul uses for know is this intuitive knowledge about God. It's like, and you, you know God, right? We, this is how God works. We, we know intuitively, but the, I think the question is, do we really? I think if truth were told, there are many times that we struggle with this whole concept of what do I do with the situations I find myself with. When those telegrams of woe come knocking at our door, do we really know that all things are going to work together for good? Now, Paul is reminding us of this one thing, and it's very certain. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. Now, as we move through this verse, I will add this. My translations, and I think the NIV translation, actually says, and we know that God causes. Probably in the best Greek manuscripts, the word God isn't found. It's, it, it's assumed, and so our translations put it in there. If you have a King James translation or an English Standard Version, it says, and we know all things work together for good. The implication is that God is causing all things to work together for good because He is the sovereign, creative God. He can take bad situations and He alone can turn it into good. There's nothing outside of God's control. All things work together for good. That's the next little phrase. Do we believe that? All things. You mean that that tragic situation that happened in my life a year ago, 20 years ago? You, you mean that loss of that job that left us destitute almost, that caused us to, to move from our family and friends? You, you mean the death of my loved one? You, you mean the illness of my little child, helpless, who didn't ask for this at all? and is struggling with life-threatening illness? All things work together for good. That's what the Scripture says. Now, how does that work? All things work together for good. Paul's not saying that all things are good in and of themselves. All things, he said, work together for good. Here this few days ago at Thanksgiving, my 13-year-old granddaughter, Naomi, and I were tasked with making dessert. Yes, it was, uh, it was a challenge. Except Naomi is a very good baker. She loves to bake. And so, you know, it's, it's not that hard. You get the, right, the recipe, and you just follow the recipe. You, you do a couple cups of flour, and you put in, you know, half a quarter, quarter teaspoon of salt, and you crack a couple of eggs and you stick it in there and you do this, a little baking soda or whatever it was, and you put this stuff in there and you, you, you mix it all together. Now, it would have been weird for us to say, 
uh, here's a cup of flour and here's some salt and some baking soda. Enjoy your dessert. <laughs> you see, it's, it's when it's all mixed to the right proportions and baked at the proper time that it could be something delightful. And if I do say so myself, it was. God is saying here, situations of life in and of themselves, like different ingredients of a dessert, are tasty by themselves. But God is sovereign, and He has a way of, of taking those ingredients, those situations, those pains, those sorrows, those, those struggles of life, and He works them together. He mixes them with the right proportions at the right time. All things work together for good. Each event in our life is like that ingredient. And God produces good when He takes charge and works it all together. Which means that we cannot judge the goodness of God's work until the final product comes out of the oven. Until God's recipe for our lives is complete, we should never judge uh, the ability of God's cooking. He's working these things out. He's working out His sovereign purposes in our life. He calls us to wait, to persevere, to keep our eyes on the prize. Don't forget that the sufferings of this present world aren't worthy to be compared with what is going to be coming out of the, the divine oven as He is baking it all together. Now, again, I think that's tough for us as Americans. We want good now. We are the people of the immediate. I want to get rid of this pain. I want out of this. I want something good to happen now. We even have some whole theologies and churches who teach health, wealth, and prosperity now. That's what God's will is for my life. We want a, a view of God as a vending machine. Let's just push the right buttons and out come the goodies. That's not the God of the Bible. God has eternal purposes in mind. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that on every, any given day, each day of our life, He doesn't dump on us wonderful gifts, a bountiful goodness. James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. Every day, if we would just open our eyes, we would see the bountiful goodness of God. We just need to make sure that our definition of good matches God's definition of good. No, God is sovereign. And He's loving. And He takes all those situations and He, he puts it all and works it all together for His ultimate good and glory and our good and glory. But let's not pass over a very important phrase that's actually in the, in the Greek text is put at the beginning of that sentence. And again, if you have an English standard version, that's, I think, the, the most accurate in this, in this verse. Verse 28 again, and we know, and in the Greek text right after that is the words, for those who love God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's a very important qualifier. Obviously, Paul is referring to Christians here, born-again believers, people who've put their faith and trust in Christ. But I think even more than that, he's saying all things can work together for good 
to those who love him. How, how do we know we're loving God? Do you love God? Because to those who love God, God is working all these things out for our good. What does it mean to love God? Jesus, I think, gives us the answer when he said in John chapter 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And in verse 21, he said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. Or in verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So there we have it. Do you love God? Even believers in Jesus Christ can struggle with that because we can live in our own fleshly desires. We can love ourselves more than we love God. We can obey our own commandments. Do we love God? Are we living obediently to his commandments? Now, earlier in Romans chapter 8, if you were with us in our study, uh, Paul had written this in verse 3 and 4. He said, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And then in verse 4 he says, So that the requirement of the law, those are the commandments, those, that's the heart of God. This is what God wants. He said, You, you, you want to love me? This is what it looks like. Here are the commandments. Obey my commandments, and you'll love me. I can't do that, we say. In and of myself, I always mess up. Well, Paul is saying here that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but we can walk according to the Spirit. There you have it. How are the commandments of God fulfilled in us? How do we love God? How do we show that love for God as we obey the commandments of God? Not in our own strength. If we walk according to our own purposes, our own desires, we'll be helpless to fulfill the law of God. We won't be loving God. But Paul is saying in this passage, the requirement of the law is fulfilled in anyone who is walking, not according to your own dictates of the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And those were a couple sermons ago when we talked about that. What it means to walk by the Spirit. How to, he says, set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And when we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, we experience, he said in verse 6, life and peace. We get up in the morning, we say, Lord, I, there's no way I in and of myself can love you. My default thinking is to love Mark Carey, myself. But Father, you have given me the Spirit within me. And so, Father, this morning I get up and I present my bodies to you as a living sacrifice. Lord, in my helplessness, I cry out to you, take charge of my life today. Take my life and let it be wholly consecrated to thee. Take my eyes, take my ears, take my mouth, Lord. Those things, this outer body, that if I don't follow you today, I'll end up saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who sets me free from this body of sin? Take them, use them for your glory. And so I'm going to take this walk of faith. And I set my minds on the things of the Spirit. I spend time in His Word. I commune with Him in prayer. And all of a sudden, He transforms me. And the fruit of the Spirit starts showing up in my life. Love and joy and peace and patience. It's like I, I, the, the requirement of the law starts being fulfilled in me. 
I, I am loving Him because I'm obeying His commandments. And it's all through the power of the Holy Spirit that it's being appropriated moment by moment as I walk according to His power by setting my mind on things of the flesh. And all Paul is saying now in verse 28 is that here's a wonderful promise. You want some encouragement today? You know that to those who love God, who are walking by the Spirit, that's what Paul means, those who love God, those who are walking according to His power each and every moment of the day, all those things are going to work together for good. Because God is a sovereign God. He's fulfilling His purposes. That's what God does. And in the meantime, behind the scenes, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. Good night. It's like a no-lose situation here, folks. What encouragement we have. Now, Paul builds on that concept as he ties in verse 29 and 30 this whole chain of incredible grace, this whole chain of, of God-moved events. Look at verse 29 again. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he is called. And these he is called, he's justified. And these whom he is justified, he has glorified. For those who he foreknew. Paul is saying, let me explain the reasons why all of this works. Why you can have encouragement today in the midst of horrendous, maybe, circumstances in your life. For those whom he foreknew... He is predestined. Now, let's not get tripped up over the word foreknow. Uh, the word foreknow means much more than just this truth that God knows what's going to happen in the future. Of course He does. That's the concept of the omniscience of God. God knows all things. He knows not only what will take place, He knows what might have taken place, what could have taken place. He knows all the permeations of, of the future. He knows all things. But Paul is using a concept here of foreknowledge or foreknown that has that Old Testament kind of concept of, of intimate, affectionate love. Um, Abraham knew Sarah, and Isaac was born. But Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Something much deeper than just knowing events. It says um, in Amos chapter 3, um, of all the nations of the world, Israel, you only have I known. What? I mean, God didn't, he didn't know about the Hittites and the Jebusites and all the other Egyptians. And of course he did. But he says, of all the nations, you only have I known. That is, I've entered into this intimate love relationship with. Um, notice that Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, for whom he foreknew. God knows events that are going to take place. But he's talking about here entering into a relationship, an intimate, an affectionate, a love relationship. That's what foreknowledge means. 
God enters into this relationship in eternity past for whom he foreknew before the foundations of the earth, it says in Ephesians. And he says, these he, whom he foreknew, he has predestined. And don't be afraid of that term either. It means simply to mark out ahead of time. God's predetermined plan. God determines what his plan is and the means by which that plan is going to take place. And it has to do with his relationship with, with us. Whom he foreknew, these also he has a plan. It's a marked out plan. It's a, a predetermined plan. What is that plan? Look at verse 29. He has also predestined what? Conformity to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among all the brethren. Conformity to the image, to the likeness of Jesus. That's what God, back in eternity past, predetermined we're going to end up like. We are going to be conformed to the image of his son. What's that mean? Well, I think a passage like Philippians chapter 3 helps us understand it. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity to the body of his glory by the exertion of power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Again, what, what, what's the problem in, in this life? What are we struggling with? Not the inner man. That's already been identified with Jesus, buried with him, raised up to him in newness of life. The inner me is forever regenerated, <laughs> forever brought to life for all of eternity. Old things have passed away. I'm a new creation. All things have become new. That's the inner me still encased in an earth suit, this body of sin, which Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin? Well, guess what? In God's predetermined plan, we're going to be set free from that body of sin. He has already determined in eternity past that we're going to be set free from that. We'll be shaped into the, for, into the likeness of Jesus. First Corinthians put it this way. Paul wrote it to the Corinthians, the first man is from the earth. That's Adam. We're born in this world. We're all born in the likeness of Adam. But then he says the second man, that's Jesus, is from heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. There will be a transformation, a conformity of this old sinful body into the likeness of Jesus. Why? Because it's predetermined by God. He's marked that out beforehand. That's the consummated end that in eternity past God set forth. Why? So that, verse 29, the last part, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus is the firstborn. He was the first to be raised to that newness of life from the grave on the third day. He got that glorified body. He's the firstborn, but guess what? There will be many saints They'll be share in that likeness. He's the firstborn among many brethren. Why? Because in eternity past, God put his affection and love on us. And he has predetermined that we're going to be conformed in the image of Jesus one day. But how does that come about? Verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he has called. And those he called, he's justified. 
Back on the farm in Nebraska in 1960, when I was five years old, my mom led me to Jesus right there in the kitchen of the farmhouse. She shared the gospel of the good news of Jesus. As a little boy, I put my faith in Christ. In that moment, God called me into an everlasting relationship with Him. The effectual call of God in my life. This word call doesn't mean this general sense of, 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 of calling. It is a specific zeroed in. He called me when I was five years old. And in that moment when he called me, he justified me. Five-year-old little boy, God gave me the gift of his righteousness. And he declared me right. For you, it might have been when you were a 35-year-old person or a 65-year-old person. But the moment you trusted Christ as your personal Savior, in that moment of time, it was God reaching down and he called you into a relationship with himself and he justified you. He acquitted you of all charges. He put the righteousness of Jesus on your account and he looked at your account now with the, with the righteousness of Jesus and he said, I acquit you of all charges. I declare you to be right before my eyes in a moment of time. And whom he called, he justified. And then it says, and whom he justified, he did what? Glorified. Did you, did you look in a mirror this morning before he came to church? Because you ain't glorified yet. <laughs> Neither am I. But you see, God in eternity past foreknew. And he predetermined that it will happen. And all Paul is saying is, it is as certain and sure as our calling and our justification. We are as good as glorified. It's past tense. He views it as, this is, it's, it's already a done deal. It's a package deal. And by the way, where were we in the whole thing? We were passive recipients. There's not a me or an I in this whole phrase. God was the one who foreloved me. God was the one who predetermined this. God was the one who called me. God was the one who justified me. God was the one who glorified me. I wasn't anywhere in the picture other than the sinner who was in need. And God did all this. Here's the encouragement Paul is wanting to give us today. No matter what we're going through, no matter what the situation is, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself, is before the throne of God and he is interceding for us. In the days and the, the fogginess of, of pain, the Holy Spirit is right on the mark and he's praying and interceding for us. And as he does, God is fulfilling his eternal purposes for our life. And he's working all these things together for our good and ultimately for that ultimate good that we're going we're to look like Jesus, as John said in 1 John 3, for we're going to see him as he is. And we'll come putting off this mortality and we'll put on immortality and we'll be with him forever and ever. That's his plan for us. His sovereign purposes that he is fulfilling. And that's why Paul could say in the next verse, which we won't look at, but he simply says, what shall we say to these things? Like, what's the conclusion? And he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? We'll look at that in a few weeks. 76 years ago, um, Lisa's dad went missing in action. And that household in Wayne, Nebraska was thrown into despair. 
Nine days later, however, there was another knock at the door and another telegram was delivered that said to Mary Eining, Wayne, Nebraska, am pleased to inform you your son, Private John F. Eining, returned to duty for December. He was found. Uh, he eventually got out of the war and married Lisa's mom and they had three children. Uh, Lisa was one of them. And eventually that second child, my wife Lisa, was the first in her family to trust Christ as her Savior. And God used her to lead her dad and mom to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, who are in heaven right now, enjoying the presence of the Lord. You see, God had a plan, and he was working all these things out. And even when the telegrams of woe come our way, rest assured, God is working it out for our good, for his glory. Because as the, the poet once said, my life is but a weaving between my Lord and me, and I cannot choose the colors he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. And not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly shall God unroll the canvas and then explain the reason why. There will be things in our life that we just won't be able to figure out. And that three-letter word will hang over it over and over and year after year. Why, Lord, why? And all Paul is saying this morning in this passage is take courage. You've got, a, you've got someone praying for you in the presence of God, <laughs> and he's right on the mark. It's the Holy Spirit, and he's interceding for you. Take courage. And take courage because, you see, there's a sovereign God, and he's, he's tied the eternity past of his forelove and his, his predetermined plan with the, with the present and and, and ultimately with the eternity future, this wonderful thread of, of God's magnificent sovereign grace that he's unfolding in your life. Take courage. Because when that loom is silent and when the shuttle ceases to fly, that canvas will be rolled out and we'll go, ah, oh, <laughs> that's the reason why. It says nothing really about us it has everything to do with God's faithfulness. What a faithful God. What a faithful God to unfold the purposes for your life and for mine. Do you know him? Have you put your faith in this faithful God? Have you come to that point in your spiritual journey that you've come to the conclusion, I need a Savior? Because the Bible says no amount of goodness that we do, nothing that we can bring to the table will ever earn a spot in heaven. It is not by works that we do, the Bible says. It's, it's a free gift because Jesus left his throne in glory and he came to this earth and he died in our place. He took our sin upon himself and he was judged for our sin placed on him. But he gives us the free gift of his righteousness 
to our account. And if we receive that by simple faith, believing that God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, in that moment of belief, we have this promise that we will never perish, but we will have everlasting life. Have you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone for eternal salvation? And when you do, and you pursue Him in love and allow the Holy Spirit to, to empower your life, God begins to do a marvelous work of grace. He is a faithful God, and He'll accomplish His purposes throughout all eternity. Would you bow your head in prayer? Father, thank you. We don't deserve these things. You have given to them, them to us simply because of your marvelous, infinite love and grace. Great, Father, is thy faithfulness. And as we sing this final song of, of praise to you, Father, I pray that we can sing it and express it from our heart. You're a wonderful God, worthy to be praised. We give you thanks for the encouragement you give to us. In Jesus' name, amen.